Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep The Diamond Necklace by Guy de Montpassant. This was first published in French under the title La Parure, <laughs> P-A-R-U-R-E, uh, which I'm when I do a Google Translate, uh, tells me it's called The Adorn- uh, Adornment. And I was like, shouldn't that be The Adornment? And uh, when I take away the La, it, it says it's a set, which, uh, I, so I guess this must be a very French word, but I've seen this under the title in English as just the necklace or sometimes the diamond necklace. Um, and that's how we're getting it today. Our translation is from the scrapbook, March 1907. It comes with a short introduction by the editor uh, saying this is uh, something Thomas Hardy would call uh, a story of one's uh, one of life's little ironies. Um, I think it could be argued that this is Montpassant's most famous story, um, and it's probably the first one, one I have, of his I encountered, and I was telling one of my students last night that I was had to do some homework for the show we were going to do today, and I started describing the plot to her, and then she she knew the story. Uh, <laughs> right. And uh, it is an impressive feat that the kids who don't, uh, you know, haven't read very much at all know about the necklace. So I think we should get you to read it to us, and then we should talk about why this poem, uh, sorry, this story first published in 1888 and then came into English in the early 20th century, still has value and interest in the 21st. I'll happily read it. I also ask you to come back to the title, to the question of what the title means. All right. That is the French versus the English. In the hour, in the in the version that you have posted for us, it's the diamond necklace. She was one of those pretty charming girls, born as if by a mistake of destiny in a family of the lower middle class. She had no dowry, no expectations, no way of being known, understood, loved, married by a rich and distinguished man. And she had accepted without enthusiasm an underclerk in the Department of Public Instruction. She was simple, knowing no art of the great world, but wretched as an outcast. When women possess neither rank nor lineage, their beauty, their grace, their charm serve them instead of birth and family. Their native fineness, their instinctive elegance, their easy adaptability are their only distinction, and these place the daughters of the common people on a par with the noblest ladies. She suffered constantly. Believing herself born to all that was delicate, all that was exquisite, she suffered from the poverty of her home, the cheap hangings, the well-worn furniture, the ugly carpets, all the things that another woman of her rank would not even have noticed, tortured and maddened her. The very sight of her little maid of all work awakened in her mind hopeless regrets and passionate longings. She dreamed of silent antechambers hung with oriental draperies lighted by tall bronze candelabra 
and of two superb lackeys in knee breeches asleep in large armchairs made drowsy by the luxurious warmth of the apartment she dreamed of great drawing rooms whose walls were ancient silk with beautiful furniture and priceless ornaments and of little boudoir tempting fragrant made for an hour's chat with the most intimate friends men of renown and position whose notice all women envied and desired when she sat down to dinner at the round table with its half-soiled linen opposite her husband who uncovered the soup saying in a tone of supreme satisfaction ah how good this is i don't know anything better than beef broth she dreamed of costly dinners of polished silver of tapestries peopling the walls with lords and ladies of ancient times with strange birds in the midst of a fairy forest she dreamed of exquisite dishes served on rare china of whispered compliments heard with the smile of a sphinx while the fair listener was eating the rosy flesh of a trout or the wing of a hen thrush she had no pretty clothes nor one single jewel and she cared for nothing else she felt that she was made for that she wanted so to please to be envied to be flattered and sought after she had one rich friend from her convent days but she no longer cared to visit her it was so dreadful when she came home and she wept whole days together with anger with regret with resentment and with despair but one evening her husband entered with an air of triumph holding in his hand a large envelope look said he here is something for you she tore the wrapper eagerly and drew out a card on which was engraved these words the secretary of public instruction and madame georges rampeneau beg the honor of the presence of monsieur et madame loiselle at the mansion of the department on the evening of monday the eighteenth of january instead of being delighted as her husband hoped she threw the invitation contemptuously on the table and demanded what do you want me to do with that but my dear i thought you would be charmed you never go out and here is a chance a great chance i had a world of trouble to get it everybody wants one they are very special and but few i can tell you are given to employees you will see there the whole of the official set she looked at him scornfully and asked with much irritation what do you want me to put on my back to go there he had not thought of that and stammered why why the dress you wear to the theater i'm sure it is very becoming he stopped astonished desperate on seeing that his wife was in tears two great drops were rolling slowly down from the corners of her eyes to the corners of her mouth what is it what is it he begged soothingly but by a violent effort she controlled herself and answered in a calm voice wiping her cheeks nothing only i have no dress to wear and so of course i cannot go give the invitation to some friend of yours whose wife has some clothes to put on he was wretched but would not give up see here mathilde how much would it cost to get a suitable dress one that you could wear other places too something very simple she thought a moment running over the items in her mind and at the same time trying to hit upon a sum that would not startle her husband's economical soul and be met with an immediate refusal at last she said with much deliberation i don't know exactly but it seems to me that with 400 francs i could manage he grew a shade paler 
that was just the sum he had saved up for a gun so that he might join a hunting party the next summer in the fields around Nanterre with some friends who went gunning there every Sunday. He said, nevertheless, very well, I can give you 400 francs, but try to have a pretty gown. The great day was approaching, and Madame Loiselle seemed preoccupied and distressed. Still, her gown was ready. Her husband said to her one evening, What in the world is the matter? For the last three days you have not been like yourself. And she answered, I am worried because I have not a single piece of jewelry to wear, not one. And without it, I shall look poverty-stricken in all my new things. I would almost rather not go. Get some natural flowers, he said. They are very much worn, and for ten francs you could get two or three beautiful roses. She was not a bit convinced. No, there is nothing more humiliating than to look poor among a lot of rich women. But her husband cried, What a goose you are! Why don't you look up your friend, Madame Forestier, and ask her to lend you some of her jewelry? You know her well enough for that, I am sure. She gave a little cry of joy. Why, yes, I never thought of that. The next day, she went to her friend and explained her trouble. Madame Forestier took out her jewel box and opened it and said to Madame Loiselle, Take your choice, dearie. She looked first at the bracelets, then at a collar of pearls, then at a Venetian cross of gold and precious stones of beautiful workmanship. She tried on the necklaces before the glass, hesitating, not able to make up her mind to take them or to leave them. She kept asking, you haven't any other? Oh, why, yes, look, I don't know what you would like. All at once she discovered in a black satin case a magnificent riviere of diamonds, and her heart began to beat with immoderate desire. Her hands trembled as she took it out. She fastened it around her neck over her street gown and stood in ecstasy before her own reflection in the mirror. Then she asked, hesitatingly, with her head in a whirl, Could you lend me that? Nothing but that. Why, yes, of course. She threw her arms around her friend's neck, kissed her rapturously, and fled with her treasure. The day of the ball arrived. Madame Loiselle was a great success. She was the most beautiful woman in the room, exquisite, gracious, and beside herself with joy. All the men looked at her, asked her name, and wanted to be presented. All the members of the cabinet asked to waltz with her. The secretary himself noticed her. She danced on air, her head completely turned, intoxicated with pleasure, thinking of nothing in the triumph of her beauty in the glory of her success, in the sort of dream of happiness made up of all the flatteries, of all the admiration, of all the newly awakened desires of that triumph so complete, so dear to a woman's heart. She left about four in the morning. Her husband, since midnight, had been asleep in a little room deserted except by three other men whose wives were having a beautiful time. He threw over her shoulders the outdoor wraps she had brought, plain little garments, whose poverty sorted ill with the elegance of her ball gown. She felt it and made her escape so as not to be noticed by the other women who were wrapped in rich furs. Loiselle tried to detain her. Wait a minute. You will catch cold. I'll go and call a cab. But she did not hear and ran quickly down the stairs. Out in the street, they could not find a carriage and began to search, calling to the cabbies they saw in the distance. They walked toward the Seine 
desperate, shivering. At last they met on the Kai, one of those dilapidated nighthawks that are never seen in Paris until after dark, as if they were ashamed of their wretchedness during the day. It set them down at their own door, Rue des Martyrs, and they climbed languidly to their apartment. It was over for her, and he, poor fellow, remembered that he had to be at the office at 10 o'clock. She threw off her wraps in front of the mirror so as to see herself once more in her glory, but suddenly she gave a cry. She no longer had the diamonds around her neck. Her husband, already half-undressed, asked, What is the matter? She turned to him, dazed. I, I, I... I have lost Madame Forestier's diamond necklace. He sprang up wildly. What? What? It can't be possible. And they searched in the folds of the gown, in the folds of the mantle, in the pockets, everywhere. It was not to be found. He asked, are you sure you had it still when you left the ball? Yes, I had my hand on it in the vestibule. But if you had dropped it in the street, we would have heard it fall. It must be in the cab. Yes, I think so. Do you remember the number? No. And you didn't you notice it? No. They looked at each other, horrified. Finally, Loiselle dressed himself. I'll go, said he, over every step we went on foot to see if I can't find it. And he went out. She remained in her ball gown without strength to get to bed, sunk in a chair, cold, stupefied. Her husband returned at seven o'clock. He had found nothing. He went to the police headquarters, to the newspaper offices, to offer a reward to the cab companies everywhere, in fact, where there was the shadow of a hope. She waited all day in the same state of terror at this frightful disaster. Loisel returned at night with his face wrinkled and pale. He had found out nothing. You must write to your friend, said he, that you have broken the clasp of the necklace and that you are having it mended. That will give us time to look around. And she wrote at his dictation. At the end of a week, they had given up all hope, and Loiselle, who had aged five years, declared, we must think about replacing it. The next day, they took the case in which the necklace had been and sought the jeweler whose name was on the inside. He consulted his books. It was not I, madame, who sold that riviere. I only furnished the box. Then they went from one jewelry shop to another, looking for a similar necklace, trying to remember just what it was like, their hearts filled with anguish and despair. They found in a shop by the Palais Royal a diamond necklace which seemed to them exactly like the one they sought. It cost 40,000 francs. They could get it for 36,000. Then they begged the jeweler not to sell it for three days, and they made the condition that he'd take it back for 34,000 francs if the other were found before the last of February. Loiselle owned 18,000 francs, left him by his father. He would borrow the rest. He did borrow it, asking a 1,000 francs of one, 500 of another, five louis here, three there. He gave notes, made ruinous engagements had to do with usurers and all the race of money lenders. He compromised his whole life. He risked his signature, not knowing whether he would ever be able to honor it and shuddering at the agony of the future, at the black misery that was closing down upon him, at the thought of all the physical privations to be endured, all the menial tortures. He went and bought the new necklace, paying down on the merchant's counter, 36,000 francs. When Madame Loiselle carried the necklace back to Madame Forestier, the latter remarked rather coolly, you ought to have returned it sooner because I wanted to wear it. 
She did not open the case as her friend had feared. If she perceived the substitution, what would she think? Would she not take her for a thief? Mademoiselle came to know the horrors of grinding poverty, but she did her part. Grown suddenly brave and strong, the dreadful debt must be paid. She would pay it. They sent away the maid. They changed their apartment. They rented an attic above the roofs of the city. She came to know the drudgery of housework, the odious tasks of the kitchen. She washed the dishes, breaking her pretty fingernails on the coarse pots and pans. She washed the soiled clothes and the heavy house cloths and hung them out on the lines to dry. Every morning she carried down the refuse into the street and carried up the water, pausing for breath on each landing. And dressed like a woman of the working classes, she went to the fruit dealer, the grocer, the butcher, her basket on her arm, bargaining, slighted, defending sou by sou her poor little all. Every month, some of the obligations must be met, and others contracted to gain time. Her husband worked in the evening, straightening out accounts. In the night, often, he did copying at five sous a page. And this life lasted for 10 years. At the end of 10 years, they had paid back everything, everything, even with the usurious interest added. Madame Loiselle looked like an old woman now. She had become the stout, hard, coarse housewife of the lower classes. With unkempt hair, her skirt all awry, her hands rough, she talked loud and knew only how to sweep and scrub. But sometimes when her husband was at the office, she sat down by the window and thought of that evening long ago, of that ball where she had been so beautiful and so flattered. What would have happened if she had never lost the necklace? Who knows? Who knows? How strange life is, how uncertain, how little it takes to make or mar it all. One Sunday, when she had gone out for a turn on the Champs-Élysées to forget the dull cares of the week, she came suddenly upon a woman walking with a little girl. It was Madame Forestier, still young, still beautiful, still attractive. Madame Loiselle trembled. Should she speak to her? Yes. Certainly, and now that the debt was paid, she would tell her everything. Why not? She went up to her. Good morning, Jean. The other failed entirely to recognize her and was astonished at being addressed so familiarly by this bourgeoise. She stammered, but madame, I do not know. You must be mistaken. No, I am Mathilde Loisel. Her friend gave a little cry. Oh, my poor Mathilde, how you have changed. Yes, I have been through very hard times since I saw you last and many miseries. And it was on account of you. Of me? What do you mean? Do you remember the diamond necklace that you loaned me for the ball at the secretary's? Yes, well. Well, I lost it. What, why, you returned it to me. I returned another just like it, and for the last ten years we have been paying for it. You can guess it was no easy task for us who had no money or none to speak of, but at last it is done, and I am very glad. Madame Forestier was amazed. You say that you bought a diamond necklace to take the place of mine? Yes, and you never found it out. They certainly were very much alike.
and she smiled with a naive, satisfied joy. Madame Forestier, deeply moved, took both her hands. Oh, my poor Mathilde, but mine was imitation. It was worth, at the most, a hundred francs. <laughs> uh, I love the way the story ends. Um, I gotta, I gotta tell you, this is one of my favorite stories. Even though there's no science fiction in it at all, <laughs> it's very plausible. Um, it, I, it hit me. It hit me hard when I read it, and I think about it a lot. And I'm not sure I can articulate all the things that explain why that is, but I, I'm gonna try. So I either think it traumatized me or it resonated with me or it crystallized something inside of me that was like um, something I was thinking about already. Um, uh, but it also is an instruction. Um, and I note that her husband works at the Ministry of uh, Education, right? Instruction, uh, public instruction, <laughs> the Department of Public Instruction. <laughs> so this is like supposed to be a lesson, I think. And uh, what it is, is um, it's really interesting to me that the f it's almost a perfect story. The only thing that uh, is really left to the, you know, left undone is what happened to the, the, the paste necklace, <laughs> the necklace of no, va no inherent value, right? Or not much value. Um, so I feel, it feels like I, I could write a story that is about this. It's like a reverse of this story where, uh, the cabman who's briefly described as, uh, driving a dilapidated, uh, uh, taxi. Um, he's called a Nighthawk. Um, and he's on the, uh, he's on the, the poor fellow on the Rue de Martyr, <laughs> the Mar Road of Martyrs, right? They lose the necklace. So I can imagine this, this, uh, no, that's night where their home is actually. Oh, their is home it? Is on the Rue de Martyr. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, he's, he's dropping them off there, right? Um, from the ball. And, uh, I can imagine this, this guy, he's deceased. The passenger has forgotten her necklace. Oh, it's a diamond necklace. He gets all excited and he goes and does something. And then I finds out it, it was just paste. <laughs> so it's like a reversal. But the thing is, is it's so interesting that the husband in here is a martyr for his wife. This story's wholly focused on the wife. And yet I don't think about the husband very much even though i'm thinking about him now i think this is a, this is about us the, whatever gender we are we make a mistake of pride we make a mistake of thinking lying will help us uh somehow and this is a story that shows that you could have avoided 10 years of hard labor like literal hard labor to pay off a debt uh, half of which came from the whole life of of the husband's father, right? Eighteen thousand uh, francs, thirty six thousand for the actual necklace, and so they spend uh, ten years doing hard labor to get another eighteen to pay off this debt, and then at the end of it, she's old, the opposite of what she wants to be, which is a Cinderella. And she doesn't have a child. Her friend does. And then what does she do? She's so proud of herself. She goes up to her friend and says, uh, 
And it was on account of you. Of me? What do you mean? She's blaming her friend who lent her a necklace for a, you know, a party she wanted to go to. And she didn't like going over to her friend's house because it made her feel bad. So she's so proud of herself. She says, you know, we paid off this horrible debt that you caused us to have. When, in fact, if she had just, you know, gone to her friend and says, oh, my God, I can't believe what happened. I We're going to try and replace the money. Her friend would say, oh, it, it was nothing, just 100 francs. It's pride and foolishness and not communicating the truth that makes this such a powerful story because we we all do little things like this when we're young and we learn a lesson and i think that the the husband here is the is the true hero because he gives up his his one desires to have a gun to go hunting with his friends he says well my wife's happiness is more important and he says, try to get an as pretty a dress as you can, because he knows she is not like him. The description of him is he has a quote, quote unquote, economical soul, <laughs> where she, her, her quote unquote is immoderate desire, right? <laughs> he knows that she's not, not good at this stuff. She wants more than she can have. We get very little from his point of view, but what does he love? First thing he says is, there's nothing better than beef broth. Right? <laughs> Not even beef, just beef broth. And she's like, no, she can't think of anything like that. She is absolutely dissatisfied with her life, and she thinks that she deserved more. I don't want to be her in my life, Eric. I want to be much more like the husband, but I also don't want to have the wife who gets me into this terrible situation, so I would would have counseled if I were Loisel's husband, I would have said, we need to go to your friend <laughs> and tell her what happened. Not because we're not going to pay it back, but because it would be wrong not to. But no, they pretend in delay so that they can buy the replacement to show that they are high class. Yeah. Everything that you say is right. Everything that he says, right? As far as I'm concerned, Jesse. But as you may have guessed, there are a bunch of other things I think I'd also like to see in this story. Sure. For, for one, this story is very reminiscent of the famous fairy tale, The Fisherman and His Wife. Okay. Is this the one with the, the fish- talking fish? Exactly. The ah. fisherman catches the fish. The fish says, if you let me go, I will grant you a wish. Um, he lets him go. He comes back. The fisherman comes back, tells his wife. The wife says, well, wish for this. He wishes for it. She's not satisfied. She wants more. She wishes for it. He goes, and he keeps going until she wants something that is absolutely impossible. Like, I want to be God. Mm. And then, of course, what the fish does is bring her back to her original poverty. So what we have in this story is she wants the dress, and he gives it to her. Mm-hmm. But then she wants more, and it's the wanting more that turns out to be the problem. Wanting per se is not it. It's wanting more. Now, of course, what you're saying about lying is absolutely true, uh, and that's very important here. But the structure in which the husband says, look what I have for you, and shows the invitation, mm. which she eagerly opens, right? It's like the fisherman coming back and saying, you know, I have 
something, you know, this is what happened. He has humility. He appreciates what's going on. Mm -hmm. The fisherman does, and so does Monsieur Loiselle. The wife is avaricious. I think one of the reasons that it's called la parure, which means the set of things that are necessary for um, um, haute toilette to be uh, dressed to the nines, as Mm -hmm. we'd say in English, rather than the necklace, is because it's not just about the necklace. It's about the necklace on top of the dress. Mm. It's what people don't realize. You want a little of this? It doesn't end there. Mm. If what you have is envy, it doesn't end. So there's a critique here of wanting to build up the whole set of things. And I think that's important. I think also that what they have done here is something that reflects on their whole lives. You know, in The Fisherman and His Wife, um, she wants to be a a pope, and then she wants to be God. (laughs) Um, Well, there's a religious background to this as well. There's a religious background to this as well. The cost of the diamond necklace is 40,000 francs. Mm -hmm. 40 is the canonical number of death and rebirth, Mm -hmm. right? Right. 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days of the Noah's Ark, 40 years in the wilderness for the uh, Israelites, um, for the Hebrews, I should say. They're not Israelites at that point. Um, And 36, which is what they bargained down to, 36, is one of the traditional numbers in French for exaggeration. As in English, I'd say, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, right? In French, you'd say, if I've told you once, I've told you 36 times. I remember reading in a, in a short story when I was a child, um, studying French. Um, I was, he was so hungry, he could eat 36 horses. <laughs> but 36 got to be a number of exaggeration because it's the full way around the circle. Right? It's, it's the full way around the circle. And if you go straight across it, if you got half from the deepest, from the, the highest height to the lowest low, from the shortest day of the year to the longest day of the year, you've gone 180 degrees. So what the man had, what Loiselle had already was 18,000 francs. Mm-hmm. But what he needed was 36,000 francs because this is the exaggeration of what he can do in his life. It should have been death and rebirth. There was no rebirth at all. You said, I think quite cleverly, that a good reader, you, (laughs) would be thinking, what happened to that actual necklace? Mm -hmm. Did it, in fact, fall into the cab and did the cabbie steal it? I mean, what happened to that necklace? But I think that there's something else that Maupassant has set us up for as well. In that last line, at at the end, Mathilde smiles with a naive, satisfied joy. That is, she lacks knowledge. But Madame Forestier, who is armored in this world by having money. Madame Forestier, deeply moved, took both her hands. We've already had descriptions of those hands. Mm. Oh, my poor Mathilde. But mine was imitation. It was worth at the most a hundred francs. So the question now arises, since Madame Forestier is being sympathetic, and she sees Mathilde's life has become worse. 
will she give her back the necklace? Yeah, I, I've had my students write uh, what happens next. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's part of like and, and, and I, I asked them, OK, so you're saying she she would give him back most of the money. Uh, maybe not the hundred. I didn't or say that. No, no. But when they do that, I say, okay, does that make up for the 10 years hard labor and the fact that they have no children? <laughs> the answer is no, it doesn't. But as you said, but as you said she is wrong. Yes. Mathilde is wrong in asserting that the cause of her problem was Madame Forestier. Right. In fact, the cause of her problem was her own avarice Absolutely. that went as with the fisherman's wife, not only to what she could have, but what she couldn't have. And by lying about what happened, she had to pay for that. Uh, she brought down not only herself, but her husband. Mm -hmm. So what kind of society does that sort of envy um, create? If we go back to the beginning of the story, we see she was one of those pretty charming girls, blah, 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 blah. And such women have to trade on their charm and their beauty. Mm -hmm. Instead of just being satisfied to live on her charm and beauty, she, in fact, is always dreaming of something else. She's born dissatisfied. And that dissatisfaction makes her unfit to succeed in French society of the late 19th century. And frankly, in a story, in a, as you say, that perhaps is addressed to us, envy and impossible fantasy may be something that misfits anyone to live in that own person's society. We could go society by society and try to apply the lessons of Maupassant because this story as you ask your students to notice, shows us there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF Audio.